You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, producer, and director Natasha Leone. She began acting back in 1986, first appearing in Pee Wee's Playhouse, and then the film Heartburn, written by the late Nora Ephron. At the time, Natasha was all of seven years old. Eventually, the child actor became a teen actor, starring in cult classics like The Slums of Beverly Hills in 1998 and But I'm a Cheerleader in 1999. Between then and now, she's been nominated for an Emmy for both Orange is the New Black and Russian Doll, which she co-created with Leslie Headland and Amy Poehler. Her latest project is the Peacock original series, Poker Face, spearheaded by Glass Onion director Ryan Johnson. Together, the two have created a 10-part mystery series centered around Charlie Kale. She's a nomadic gambler played by Leon, who has a preternatural ability to tell when people are lying. In time, this gift, if you can call it that, gets her into a whole lot of trouble. Here's a clip from the trailer. What's it like? Always knowing the truth. There's nothing mystical about it. I could just tell. I know what you did, you psycho. You're gonna find Charlie Kale, and you're gonna bring it to me. You live on the road, right? What's it like? Leave everything behind. Start fresh. I got wolves on my fender. Oh, I gotta keep moving. Holy, holy. It wasn't an accident. I, I think there's been a murder. Look out! I have been kind of a death magnet. I'm trying to figure out what happened. You watch too much Dateline. I could tell she was lying. What is it? It's a woman's intuition? No, it's not like a tampon commercial, okay? It's a real thing. I guess I'm not over the part where you're a human lie detector. Yeah, I know, it's uh, it's crazy. You ever gamble? Cause you can make a killing. <laughs> nah. Hey, 
That was a clip from the show Poker Face, now available to stream on Peacock. The season finale is directed by Janixa Bravo and will air Thursday, March 9th. If you haven't seen the show yet, I would urge you to check it out. Many critics have called Poker Face a modern-day Columbo, but it's also very clearly influenced by the work of Robert Altman, Bob Fosse, and Alfred Hitchcock. We dive into all of those influences in this conversation, but we also talk through the life Natasha had to live to arrive at shows like Russian Doll and Poker Face, a life marked by a checkered childhood, a deep, deep love of movies, and a battle with addiction. And on that subject, I just want to thank Natasha at the top here for being so open in discussing her road to recovery. It's a difficult issue to wrestle with privately, let alone publicly, which she's had to do for the past couple decades. And we also talked about that dark period because we wanted to discuss what came from it, which was a collaboration with Nora Ephron in an off-Broadway play, creating catharsis through Russian Doll, making Poker Face, co-founding a production company called Animal Pictures with the great Maya Rudolph, and so much more. And so with that, I hope you enjoy this very, very special episode with the one and only Natasha Leone. Natasha. Yes. How are we doing? Pretty good. How are you? This is uh, not usually the venue where we have conversations. Now we do a lot of out of the out of the house, out of the studio talking. Out of the house, yeah. out of the studio. Late at night. Late at night. We do a lot of middle of the night talking. If at any point you want to just have like loud music be playing to I, match. Honestly, it would help. The scenario. <laughs> and my dream is that it's just sort of uh, bacchanalia just happening everywhere around me. I just sort of orgiastic sort of soundscape, but in the distance, in the you know distance. what I mean? Like, and I want to know that there's an option to be fed grapes at any moment, but I don't necessarily have to get involved with the toga party. It's just right there. Yes. And then I feel a sort of white noise and I, I calm down. My shoulders drop just knowing it exists. I'm going to drop the shoulders. Baby, Here you got to go. get out those togas. You, you <laughs> That's what it takes. I'm not really a daytime player. You know, neither am I. Yeah. As we've seen. We love the nightlife. After 10.30? Yeah. I'm ready to go. I'll be looking for action. Hieronymus Bosch me. Can we start with this new show of yours? Okay. In it, you play Charlie Kale, a desert-wandering ex-gambler who uses her preternatural ability to tell when people are lying to solve murders. Now, since the show first aired in January, there have been a lot of people online that have compared your character and the show to Peter Falk and Columbo. But I'm curious, more specifically, when you started creating this character, how much were you thinking about Gene Hackman in Night Moves and Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye and California Split? Yeah, I mean, all those specific references have been previously name-checked along the way. Those are the exact things that we talked about. If you haven't seen it in writing, then good job to you, because... It's a bingo. And in fact, with regards to Night Moves, I was sort of talking to Ryan about it. And I was like, you know, not even Popeye Doyle. Do you know what I mean? Like, not not even French Connection. Lazier. Lazier still Night Moves. You know, Night Moves Hackman. What's funny about the Philip Marlowe and, um, you know, Altman, uh, Elliot Gould of it all is obviously that had been a huge touchstone for Amy Poehler and Leslie Hedlund and I in creating Russian Doll. Of course, that's even where Oatmeal the Cat comes from is a direct rip of uh, the cat from The Long Goodbye. And mm-hmm. that's why Nadia's always heading to the deli and so on. And so, you know, and that always been a huge touch point for me in general, but oddly also became the common ground that Ryan Johnson and I had in a sort of shorthand of here are the things that we like. And certainly you're naming the California Split, which was even down to, you know, um, with the costume designer, Tracy G.G. Field, became a real touch point of, Things like, you know, little rolled up neckties and, and so on. In the costume work. Yeah, like that's how much California Split was in there. So I would like to say to you, a bingo, bingo, bingo. Uh, I like this bingo, bingo, bingo. Yeah, you, you got it. It's three bingos. It's more than two. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of bingos in this uh, in this episode. Listen, I can't fucking wait. <laughs> Tell you right the hell now. I uh, 
the other one was obviously uh, Jeff Bridges Lebowski, mm-hmm. you know, like Big Lebowski, the dude. And I think I wanted to be like back foot, middle age, mm-hmm. generally sort of uh, more buoyant. Oh, great. I'm actually interested in engaging with people. Like Nadia and, and Russian all have a, a way that she sort of amused or kind of will take the piss out of people a little bit. And obviously, I would say what they share, though, is big-hearted characters who go about it in their very distinct lone wolf ways. If ultimately, you know, Russian all is a show about, you know, defiant nihilist who finds somebody and uh, is sort of like less alone and therefore opens up. Weirdly, um, and in season two goes even, you know, uh, deeper into this sort of sense of connection and family and a much deeper sense of, great, now that I have made the decision to be alive, you know, what does it mean to be a human being? And Poker Face, Charlie Kale is somebody who doesn't have quite that level of sort of PTSD damage, I think. She has her own damage, Mm -hmm. but is a little bit more naturally inclined to an interest in other people. Is a Mm -hmm. little bit less sort of solipsistic in a way. And I guess with Peter Falk in particular, it's really for me about heart in a way. That's what it is. Yeah. And and always with Peter Falk, it's for me, I really come to him through Cassavetes, obviously, much more than even Columbo and maybe even on some level. Uh, Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire, yeah. 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 I mean, these are some of my favorite guys. These are some of my favorite boyfriends. <laughs> some of your favorite guys. You directed the eighth episode of the show, which stars Nick Nolte as a special effects artist who revisits a past project to find some bit of closure from the guilt of a fatal onset accident. When you're producing, acting, and directing an episode of TV, I like to imagine you as Bob Fosse on the set of All That Jazz. But I'm curious, what does it actually look like for you? Well, in my mind, I'm like, I wish I was Bob Fosse and All That Jazz. Obviously, it's, a, it's really my favorite genre, that, which is the person in the hospital bed sort of looking back at a life. I think you also see that in Once Upon a Time in America, sort of like, the phone rings and it's De Niro in the opium den sort of remembering life. I guess in some ways even the series, uh, The Singing Detective with Michael Gambon, you see that also. Sort of, I, I think I'm obsessed with that genre, you know. Why do you think that is? Probably just personal life experience of, you know, spending a lot of time in hospital beds as an old junkie or whatever. It just, in that era, in that sort of like recovery process or whatever, obviously I've been clean for almost two decades now. Uh, but, you know, you really inevitably end up looking back at a life when that's your only choice is to be sort of like, how did I get here? And and you know how you got there. You got there because like you wanted to hear the sound of the music and you wanted to make the noise quiet down. That genre speaks deeply to me. And in, in many ways, this episode, The Orpheus Syndrome, I co-wrote with uh, Alice Jew, who's also one of the Russian writers. She also writes uh, the second episode of Poker Face this year. She's brilliant. And um, in many ways it is, it's Ryan's idea of like, what if there was sort of a Phil Tippett type character and Phil, if you're unfamiliar, is, uh, he created a lot of the designs for um, Star Wars, among other things. It's a special effects master, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and everything when they were really crafting it from hand. And it is, it's so much of this episode in particular is a lot of those thematics of sort of ending up in a point in time in life where you've got no choice but to sort of look back over and over again at sort of the mistakes you've made and then rearrange them according to the new information that unfolds. To your question, though, as much as I'd like it to be, you know, Bob Fosse or whatever, and sometimes it does feel that way, particularly when you're directing extras, because there's a measure of choreography to it. It's a sort of a one, two, three, four, you guys look here and you guys look there. But the other part of me inside feels a bit more like a direct lineage that I see from almost like a Charlie Chaplin or a Harold Lloyd or a Buster Keaton. Because I'm sort of sillier than all that, naturally, the feet start walking different and I'm very alert and looking in all directions and kind of on top of it all and... There's a bit of a Charlie Chaplin comes out in that. It's fun as hell, suffice to say. Well, why don't we take a look at what that energy produced? This is from episode eight of Poker Face, starring the great Nick Nolte, directed by uh, you, Natasha Leone. I lost a friend. She was my best friend, uh, Natalie. And, uh, you know, I wonder if I could have saved her, but I didn't. And so I walked away, too. Uh, You know, I keep thinking it's behind me, right? But then I keep just, like, playing it back out again, trying to to make it right, trying to change it. I don't know. Does it ever end? Do I believe that the dead can forgive us? 
No, I don't believe that. Bullshit. What? I mean, if you didn't think the dead could forgive us, you wouldn't be making your whole movie, the, uh, the Orpheus Syndrome. I mean, that's what it's all about. Bringing the past back to life like a ritual of penitence. Ritual of penitence? Who appointed you Pope? I was recently anointed, thank you. I, uh, come on, man, cut the shit. I mean, you got Orpheus, who's going through film gates into the underworld, which looks like a water tank, to bring a girl back from the dead. The guy's got a movie camera for a face. The other guy, that Cyclops monster, he's got a red light bulb for an eye. I mean, I'm not judging. It's just, you know, it all makes sense. You gotta revisit the past to get past it, huh? Hey, that's true. Hey, Domine Vomingus Dingus. I'm gonna make some hot pockets. Coming back, I, I just love that dynamic between you and Nolte. And that line you have to him at the end, it's one I've been thinking about a lot this week. You said, you've got to revisit the past to get past it. And so I thought, with that in mind, why don't we try to do the same together? So growing up in Great Neck, I'm going to be honest, I never heard of Great Neck until yesterday. Great. Uh, But I think one of your first... Yes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yes, dear. I think we done the show there. Yeah. Um, one of your one of your first performances you gave, as I understand it, was for the passengers on the Long Island Railroad. At your mother's behest, you would do a dramatic reading of stock tips from the Wall Street Journal. I'm curious, what did that sound like? Gosh, I wish I could still do it for you. This is like you want my old Shirley Temple material. Yeah, uh, see, I feel like I, you can channel this. I would need I would need a paper. You know what I mean? Because you got to read off the names of the listings, and then you got to tell you know what's up, what's down. It's a trick I can no longer do. I did it for years. I remember like between the ages of four and ten, this was like my major Yuri uh, Geller sort of spoon bending magic trick. <laughs> is I would delight audiences of adults by reading them stocks. Did that parlor trick, did it make sense to you at the time? Were you just like, this is just part of who I am? <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah. You know, so I'm born in the city. I feel like that's important because I lie about it often. You know, in other words, I say I'm from Manhattan, but I genuinely am. I swear to God. And they had this dilapidated mansion in Kings Point in Great Neck in Long Island. That your and parents told you Herman Melville used to live in. That They said, yes, Herman Melville. And then the New Yorker told me. Go fuck yourself. It's not Herman Melville's house. I said, well, why would you destroy my childhood? Who cares? Like, I didn't know it was a fucking mess. And right. I didn't know they were pathological. Thanks so much. This is like discovering Santa isn't real. Yeah. I was but like the New Yorker this, bursted. Yeah. And I was like, who else was claiming Herman Melville's? <laughs> Calm down, Moby Dick. Like, Why couldn't they just let you have it? Why couldn't they let me have it? You but, know what? Unsubscribe. Uh, unsubscribe. That's the New Yorker. Anyway. <laughs> that, that's, is that the tagline? The New- <laughs> unsubscribe. That's the New Yorker. No, or just like, <laughs> we debunk your childhood. The New Yorker. Bursting bubble since 1907. <laughs> you thought your life was a mess. We're here to confirm it, bitch. You so, know what? It was just as bad as you said. Yeah. We talked to many people. We talked to many people. We found out it was worse. You know how you, <laughs> you had three things you thought that you could hang on? They tried to tell me at some point. They were like, we couldn't find your, uh, you know, so NYU skipped me my senior year and I was going to be in their uh, film and philosophy program. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to read a bunch of fucking Nietzsche or whatever and then go write sort of Bergman but funny movies about it. I'd already worked with Woody Allen. I talk about him a lot today because not enough people do right now. And uh, and you put T.S. Eliot in that essay, right, to get in? I did. Wow, you've done your research. The Hollow Men. The Hollow Men. And so... I guess Tish says, sure, come here early. And the point is, is that I never paid the tuition. You know, I never actually went. I just Mm -hmm. audited classes for multiple semesters. And the New Yorker tried to tell me that I didn't. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is Key Permit Melville. But I swear to God, I've been in that building like multiple times. I've taken Cinema Studies 101 and that's how I decided to leave. So what are you guys doing here? That was a real back and forth. I was like, I'm not in the thing because I never went to the school. So now I'm determined to get, you know, one of those honorary doctorates to teach the New Yorker a lesson. <laughs> yeah, that, that will teach them. Yeah, that'll show them. Well, right? Here is a confirmed fact. Your first official role comes in Nora Ephron's Heartburn 
1985. I know it was a brief appearance, but you played a child asleep on some guy's lap at a wedding. And I'm just wondering, like, how much of yourself did you bring to that character? Oh, thank you. Was, was it deep method acting or was it challenging? You know, who knew that only 30 years later I'd be off off Broadway in a black box doing a play called Tigers Be Still. And also method acting, sleeping on stage when it said she sleeps. <laughs> it was a precursor. It was. And that's, that's the nature of quantum consciousness. You know what I mean? Who are we in which moment? I barely know who I am in this moment. So, so it's <laughs> a challenge. When you did that role, did any part of that process make sense to you? Did it excite you to like be on set? Was it something you thought, this seems like kind of fun. I could do this. The child acting thing is so weird because, well, in the first place, I guess the good news is I was never a child star. I was <laughs> I was like a working child actor. What's weird is, of course, having spoken a lot and, you know, being friends with people like Macaulay Culkin, let's say, or uh, we all have a similar experience of my parents put me in this thing. Sure, I was somewhat charismatic and naturally inclined towards it. But then the weirdness of the fact that I'm so highly attuned as a small adult accidentally does have a sort of B-side that's inevitable. Not to speak to him, but to speak for myself. For me, in, in adulthood, I really had to come back to it on purpose. That was necessary because I was, for lack of a better term, you know, a, a natural. I'd never taken an acting lesson or anything like that. And back in my time, you know, a kid had to know tap and so on. <laughs> kidding, but you sort of, I was like, into that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, I liked the idea of being a song and dance man and like a, a street urchin and a I liked the concept, but the truth of like the inevitable, again, speaking for myself only, of having a fucked up family dynamic while that's happening, while you're trying to make money. And there are weird things, you know, like for sure my family spent the cash. For sure, I'd be like embarrassed by behavior at work. So like actually doing, let's say, Pee Wee's Playhouse would be so fun, but the air around it would make me feel sort of weird or embarrassed, you know, of like having a parent there or just weird things like walking around like Times Square, you know, auditioning in like the 80s by yourself, weird. <laughs> Hoping your dad will pick you up. Yeah. And you, I, I just, why don't you ask me the questions and I'll try to answer one at a time because it's wonderful that you know all this stuff and that I know you. And I'm down for the ride because I'm a sh one shrink short of a party at the moment. <laughs> so I'll take the free. This is what I'm here for. I'll take it. You have this quote about your parents who did seem like the driving forces in your early career. You said, even if they were ready to have children, it is kind of a wacky idea to put your child in business at six years old. I had to become coherent and a businesswoman at six. By 10, I was a jaded professional. By 16, my youth was over and my goose cooked. I don't think they knew better. It was a decision of my parents built on hopeful ignorance. What is that hopeful ignorance? What did that look like? I mean, I think another way of, I mean, now I'm so, um, well, I'm a sick, 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 depraved person. But, you know, I'm also well, I guess, against my will. Uh, yeah, don't worry. I'll, I'll be prefacing that in the yeah, intro. Oh, good. <laughs> or at least, you know, very high functioning. I'll also add that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, and uh, I'm also tech avail if anyone has a job. Uh, that I'm going to leave out. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm just wondering why I've got to get, uh, get the good stuff out there. <laughs> Uh, anyway, a book like, you know, The Gifted Child of Narcissistic Parents is really what that means, this sort of hopeful ignorance, meaning even if you have a kid at home who's saying, oh, I want to do blank, blank, blank. You know, you see it all the time as sort of Nepo babies, I guess, that the healthy ones, the parents were like, great, but you need to sort of finish school and we'll give you sort of a lot of the tools that when you you still feel this way at 18, you can do it, meaning we'll encourage you in the arts and all these ways, but also we want to make sure that you're well-rounded enough to make that decision if you still feel that way at 18. You know, for example, who knows, maybe I would have said, I what I really want to be as a playwright or, you know, what I really want to be as a musician or I don't know. I don't even know that I ever said this is what I want to do so much as they were like, well, we're going to take advantage of the fact that you got this mop top curly hair and you like reading the paper out loud to people <laughs> and we're going to make some money off this, basically. And it will realize a dream that we have by proxy of you being a somebody 
because to us, the value system is a thing that you as a teenager will decide is a very sick, warped value system. So by the time I'm 16, what I mean by all that, my goose is cooked or whatever, when we talk about the hollow men, or is by then I now had a working experience of what it meant to be in an industry mm. that valued things that were no longer aligned with my sense of meaning or purpose. I think that my parents' vision for it was one that was you know, strictly about making it and fame. So for me, I spent about a decade aggressively trying to fail or sort of like dim my light as best I could to annihilate that completely. And then rebuilding that was very much about what would my version of this look like? Can we go to that um, jaded 16-year-old whose youth seemed to be over before it really began? It's 1995. Your mother has moved to Miami while you stay in New York living on a couch in Murray Hill. It's then that you're working on this Woody Allen film called Everyone Says I Love You. You're making this film on the set because you're 16. You have to have this tutor whose name is um, Karen Cooper. What did this woman do for you? She seemed to be like this figure that showed you art that you hadn't previously experienced. It opened some door. So what's weird about my uh, parents is my mother's side. So she's born in Paris. She has these Hungarian parents who have survived the Holocaust. On my father's side, he's born in Brooklyn, and, you know, he's like sixth-generation American, and they're, they're Russian. They both come from these sort of very religious in different ways, I guess, on my mother's side, they're more European traditional. My father's side, they're more like black hat Brooklyn Jews, and they come together, and they're very wild, my parents. My, my mother is like, you know, a wild redhead, you know, European who wants to be like a dancer, and, and then she meets my crazy father, who they're both now dead. Um, my father's got like a long greased up black ponytail and aviator sunglasses and he's been in the his father's button business but what he really wants to do is be a race car driver and a boxing promoter he has a dream of bringing mike tyson to the tel aviv hilton and being the don king of israel so i'm with these two nut jobs and you know <laughs> he's driving like a black porsche she's driving a red alpha male spider and they're nuts they're coked up it's the 80s you know now, looking back, it's great. But then at the time, it's chaotic. Great for material? Exactly. And, you know, like the visual images are strong and they are coming hard and fast and constantly. You know, but meantime, I'm I'm taking it all in and I'm racking up the PTSD, but I'm also, I'm becoming really good at somebody who later will be able to say, this is an image and this is a soundscape and that's a performance. But This <laughs> is a performance. They also, they have me in this religious Jewish school in Manhattan. By this point, I'm living in Manhattan. So we do six, seven years in Long Island, not in Herman Melville's house. <laughs> okay. Then I we go to, to Israel for two years for tax evasion reasons, not religious ones. Then my mother and I, you know, now they're separated. My mother in the cloak of night brings me back to Manhattan. And so now from the age of 10 on, I'm sort of a city kid and I'm a scholarship kid on the Upper East Side at a school called Ramaz. The rabbi, Joseph H. Lookstein, upper, lower and upper school of Ramaz. You know, I'm identified as a freak pretty quickly, uh, but I want to brag and say I was an honors Talmud student, which for a lot of people will mean a lot. I just want you to know that I can read and write Aramaic. So when I saw the Passion of the Christ, I was like, I got this. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, great, this movie speaks to me. And how about those Jews? They were a fucking mess, I said. Uh, but anyway... I've now had, I've been expelled from my school because I've told them that I'm going to be in a Woody Allen movie and also I'm a drug dealer. I'm the school drug dealer. But of course, then I think they found out once it was a Woody Allen movie and I was on Letterman and shit, they were like, oh, you should come back. And I was like, too late. I'm about to attend and leave <laughs> Tish. But so anyway, the point is, is I'm part of my weird education, why this woman, Karen Cooper, was so significant sorry to take you all the way back there to get you here. I, I love it. It was because I hadn't really been exposed, I think. Granted, in Israel, we, we had very few movies and they were, you know, like The Godfather and Scarface and Rocky. I loved Rocky and A Fish Called Wanda. And uh, I knew a lot about like the Bible and the Talmud, <laughs> but I didn't know a ton about things like T.S. Eliot, Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola's wife, Salvador Dali, uh, Andre Breton. I didn't know all this other information. So I think it really was like this huge 
opening for me that was accidental because of this onset tutor. In the aftermath of that film, it comes out, you buy an apartment at 18 near Gramercy Park, in Gramercy Park? Adjacent. Adjacent. It's close enough. I'm not the New Yorker, so yeah. you can just... <laughs> Oh, good. Okay. So with this film and this commitment to continue doing this work, you're in this film that I love called uh, The Slums of Beverly Hills, opposite Alan Arkin. You just raised your eyebrow when I said I loved it. <laughs> oh, I, I love that movie. I Honestly, it's a very pure experience for me. When The Slums of Beverly Hills comes out, that's 1998, the next year is But I'm a Cheerleader. You grace the cover of Interview Magazine. Do, do you remember this at all? I remember the cover. I don't know what else. I have it here. Inside the piece from 1999 are a series of quotes that are basically what would be like your high school yearbook quotes. <laughs> Which was weirdly actually in a nice then quote. Uh, which I kind of regret. Um, I, mean, I mean, she's great. But it's just a random as hell quote. It's like you don't a mark regret of a, her as a person. No, yeah. no, no. I mean, but it's a real pseudo intellectual. Can you um? Re- just, there's a couple. You want me to read them? Read just the top one. I think is a fun one for oh, us. Oh no, it's gonna be shame based. No, it's not. Uh, who you fuck in high school isn't as significant as you think it's gonna be at the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's true, no? It's that's true. These are just facts. That's a pearl of wisdom. That's a pearl of wisdom. I was just trying to speak to my people. I was like, listen, kids, kids, kids. <laughs> well, you were a kid at that time. Yeah, yes. you should, but I was like, hey, peers, peers. <laughs> there was another one. Oh, man, I just love these. You want this one? What is it? Something about sex. Well, you can read it if you want. I don't know that this is true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know that this is, but apparently I, I do think there's some markers here of a sick person. Okay. okay. Well, <laughs> now, now you have to I'm read really, <laughs> I think sex is a metaphor for everything else in life. How old am I in this interview? <laughs> it's 99, so. Barely 19, maybe 18, 19. Yeah, 18, 19. 18 to 20, somewhere in there. Uh, the sooner you get over the idea it's not going to be perfect, the sooner you're going to realize that nothing is really <laughs> That way, you'll appreciate it much more when you're older and wiser. <laughs> it turns out sometimes it can't be perfect. It can be perfect sometimes. If you're lucky enough for that to happen. <laughs> Just unbelievable. Yes. That's, I, I, I bring these passages back to you. Yeah. Why I, am I so obsessed with sex as a kid? Teenagers, huh? <laughs> Teenagers doing an interview for Interview Magazine, <laughs> doing the best I can. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid and I wouldn't really journal, I would keep like... Uh, philosophy notebooks where little zines not even zines they're they're a little bit like uh in order to endure life you know man must realize that like i think i liked to write in this philosophical sense so i can see here that i'm sort of talking to someone but trying to sort of say sex is a metaphor you know what i mean (laughs) i'm trying to give them gems from on high it's glorious. You know, like Camus or something. That's what I'm trying to do. And- You're exactly like Camus. <laughs> He'll come back at the end here. But in, in this time, early 2000s, you're in New York. How much of your philosophies and lifestyle was informed by, sure, Camus or Hunter S. Thompson or Lou Reed or Bukowski? I mean, all of it and probably still. I would say I'm very stunted. And also, I, I'm beginning to realize I think I'm a late bloomer. And- did, you, did you just realize that now? Yeah. Today? <laughs> I was thinking to myself that I was like, I think I'm a late bloomer. Also because I would say, I think I'm getting better at sex. <laughs> I, I think I'm finally starting to understand it. <laughs> I don't know what the point is here. What's the question? No, those those people. Oh, like, yeah, like I love er, those people. Early 20s, were they kind of prescriptive in a way of the kind of young person you wanted to be? I mean, more than that, like definitely I'm somebody who's guilty of romanticizing uh, a Bukowski, a Henry Miller, and an Ison, and Hunter S. Thompson. You know, this idea of like, I'm going to drop out of society and I'm going to go on the road. I'm going to get into the underbelly. I'm going to be in the belly of the beast. I'm going to see what its life really is on the other side. And from there, I'll then decide if this construct is my cup of tea or not. What did you find in the underbelly when you went in? A lot, actually camaraderie, street smarts. I'm definitely moved through life still, I would say, as a bit of a a drug dealer and a drug addict, even though it's so many years behind me, just in terms of, like, if somebody talks to me on the phone about a deal or something, like, I sort of, it's like, abandon your limited perspective, buddy. Let me tell you how, (laughs) here's another scenario of how this could go. And I think that is very much from my 
life in buying and selling drugs with characters because there's always sort of like a third way, an initial pitch for something where you're going to get fucked. And then there's a second round. And then there's like a side deal that you can make if you come in through the back door. So I think I don't see life in the same class system as a result because I've spent so much time having friends all over the scales in life of like fancy fashion shit or literally in like the tents of downtown LA such that you kind of get a sense for a wider spread of who's the real deal and who's a dangerous person. And it's not at all what people would want you to believe. So you kind of learn a lot of that. I mean, that's, uh, it's also very poker face, obviously, like this idea of how to tell when somebody's full of shit or not. In this period where you're using, you had this quote that I thought was important. You said, I think so much of my being a wild thing was because I was trying to get in my parents' shoes. I'm curious, when you did step into their shoes, what did you see? Well, it's interesting. You know, I definitely saw a lot of forgiveness firsthand. Like, when it comes to my parents, first of all, I mean, I really, I really loved them. You know what I mean? And I think they really, really loved me. Like, I don't want to conflate experiences. In other words, a lot of people have a more tangible sort of experience of abuse at home. Mine was sort of like, in many ways, I was what they call like the rarefied object, which is a similarly warped and distorted thing. It means more like essentially what I was talking about earlier, which is they were sort of projecting their vision of what they could be through me. So it's it's not like they were beating the shit out of me every day and saying, you worthless piece of shit, like you suck, which is I think what a lot of people have the experience of, of, of parents who are fucked up or high or drunk. For me, that would look more like coming home like drunk dad or something saying like, did she get the part? Or, you know, like, why didn't these cocksuckers give her the part? You know, like, it would be more in that vein. So they were pretty great as figures in many ways. And I really think, you know, they really loved me. It's just that they didn't know how, which was, I think, the thing that I discovered of, like, why are these people so sick? Let me see how they live. What is this white powder? And what is this clear glass bottle that gets walked around the house? And so I was sort of like, well, I'll drink some Absolute and I'll do some cocaine. And sure enough, now I do sort of understand them a little bit better. It is dark here. It's both light and dark. It's a solution and it's a problem. It's like an end of loneliness and it's now a deeper, darker loneliness. Mm. It's both. It's everything, right? It's sort of like uh, flights of fancy or um, delusions of grandeur. And it's also like low, 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 brutal self-esteem, crippling almost like a self-dictated paralysis in a way because of what have I done with my life? It gave me a sort of clearer understanding of the spectrum of that it wasn't personal what they were doing to me or to my brother. It wasn't like they were trying to do any of these things. It's genuinely the lifestyle they were kind of caught up in because of just sort of bad judgment or lack of tools or they come from really the war is much closer. I mean, that's very much Russian All Season 2 is about sort of like many ways me forgiving the fact that it's like Hitler's fault that I was on heroin, not my mother's. Do you know what I mean? Like, she was just sort of like grandfathered into bad parenting in a way. And I was just sort of like a product of like, is this how to navigate that? So anyway, finally, in, in the darkest sense, which I'm aware of, I think that they're both pretty fucking brilliant. My dad is like hysterically funny. And my mother was like really like brilliant, like a beautiful writer. And they're not two dummies at all. Like they just had big dreams that didn't pan out because life got ahead of them. And yet for me, just to tell you the truth for no apparent reason, but them dying in a way is what kind of, I think, freed me up to become a writer, a director, do like fucking talk shows and fucking magazines. And I, you know, I got this beautiful company with my Rudolph Animal Pictures and let's do this and make it bigger, bigger, bigger. I think in their lifetime, I was so terrified of sort of like spooking the cat. I would see like Drew Barrymore's mother or Lindsay Lohan's mother. And I was so terrified that anything I did that was in the public sphere would poke the bear and make them want to participate, that I was like, how small can I stay? And weirdly, without noticing it, once they were gone, I was like, oh, maybe there's all this stuff I can do in life that I didn't even know I sort of was that hungry for in a way. You know what I mean? I don't think I really understood who I was until they were gone because I wasn't quite so defined by them, even though I would spend a lifetime writing work that was essentially about them. All the things you just mentioned, 
they would not have been possible without you getting sober in 2006, right? And then having this like period sort of off the grid or on your own, reading Thomas Pynchon and rediscovering yourself. And I want to understand this, these two plays you do, which is like the first one's with Mike Lee and the next one's with Nora Ephron in like 2008, 2009. And I wondered if doing those roles after going through Helen back, was that the moment you discovered the reason why you love acting as opposed to the reasons that were prescribed to you from your parents? First of all, I talk about all this stuff openly on purpose in an effort to sort of alleviate some cloak of shame around this stuff. I don't think it's necessary. I think we're all just, you know, human beings doing the best we can. Everybody's got their particular set of circumstances. And also, I think that there's some sort of a misnomer in a way about getting clean, like as if it's this 28-day adventure that you can like, oh, let me recover. Let me get on the cover of People magazine and talk about it. You know, for me, I don't even really have a choice to kind of be public about that or not. I mean, it was in the news, right? Uh, But you didn't do that, to be clear. I did not do that. And also, nobody asked me to do that. Nobody was like, where'd she go? People were like, we didn't notice she left, to be honest. But what it sort of gifted me with accidentally was like a real five years where I did nothing but drop out read fucking 600 pages against the day. It really was like a time for like a deep dive and a total dropout of society where I was able to sort of reassemble. And Chloe came to me and she said, you know, there's this guy that I've done plays with before, Scott Elliott at the new group, and he's going to do a, a Mike Lee play, uh, 2000 Years. And Chloe Seven, Chloe Seven, who's my best friend, but really more than that, like my sister, I would say. And, you know, if it's a, a story about like sort of like me building my own family on accident, out of necessity as a sort of orphan, I obviously, Chloe is a huge figure in that. So I was like, no, nah, you know, I'm not, I, don't, I haven't done a lot, but I haven't done plays since like high school. You know, I don't even know that I'm going to do this anymore again. And I kind of went to New York and I uh, I stayed in Murray Hill this time. I stayed with, uh, you know, Ruth Factor, who's my godmother, who's kind of uh, the basis of Ruth and Russian all that mm-hmm. Elizabeth Ashley plays. And the next day, I remember I was like, found like change around the house and I got like a a chip witch and a a small coffee at the deli. And I went to this thing, which was like an audition. I was like, holy shit, it's a British accent. And this is a Mike Lee play. And sure enough, of course, I did the play and Mike Lee came down and everything. And and it was, it was a really big deal to understand that like I was capable of getting somewhere every day for, you know, five months that it was outside my comfort zone. In other words, holy cow, I can't believe I'm sort of being like Mm. British off-Broadway Mike Lee, who's such an idol of mine because of this David Doolis, Cat and Cartilage thing. And and it was fucking great. And it was like I lived in a furnished apartment that I found right like two blocks from the theater so I wouldn't fuck it up or go back to like the Lower East Side and like the haunted East Village and, you know, where people would say, you know, hey, Crystal, or, you know, like call me by random pseudonyms as I would walk down the street. And, uh, and yeah, it was great. That next year, when you do the Nora Ephron play, yeah, in this period, how much did her encouragement mean to you? You know, obviously, I'm a, a huge fan of uh, Nora's from her writing. Like, if you read Heartburn, I remember at some point during the play, she gave me, she was like, but have you ever read, actually read it? And I read it, and I was like, holy shit, this is a major fucking book of a life thematic, I really believe in, of an end of loneliness or shame around, in that case, something like, you know, being cheated on when your life's supposed to be perfectly like of course that helped in immense she's just so brilliant and so witty and fucking she Nora Ephron is so cool I remember though like around the time of getting this job going with Ruth to see Julie and Julia and saying there's no way I can do this production this is a typology of personhood that is so clean and so crisp that essentially I'm going to get to the theater and they're going to discover that I'm these irregular sheets and that they've been hoaxed. In as much as I loved that they were like these cerebral New York ladies, Delia and Nora, who I'd met and really hit it off with, which is how I got the job. They are the shit. Yet I was scared that I was going to have to be sort of essentially clean in a way that was going to feel like a lie and people were going to see through it. What happened was shocking. Like It was like the beginning of this thing that was going to keep happening for the next decade of major women taking me under their wing and saying, no, you dummy. We've all had alcoholic parents. Like, it turns out that Nora and Delia's parents, their next-door neighbor was fucking Oscar Levant. You can't find a bigger sort of, like, depraved genius. Uh, I mean, and 
They understood. Rosie O'Donnell understood. Time daily, she got it. Carol Kane was not judging. Tracy Ellis Ross was like, I've got you. We're friends. Like, something happened that would later become an ongoing sort of event later with Amy Poehler or Genji Cohan that I was like, holy shit, these are going to be the women that hold me in this life. After the break, more from Natasha Leone. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers Back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. In that decade that was to come, you get Orange is the New Black in 2013. I think Nora Ephron died the year before that. But I want to talk about Russian Doll. When you're making the show, it's my understanding that you had been working on the idea for years and years. And in the midst of brainstorming it, you had some session with Nora Ephron. She sent you an email about the show. Do you remember what that email was? Yeah, I do. I mean, so I I guess what happens is, uh, you know, Nora and I end up super tight. And there was this moment, I was coming to LA, I was trying to do a, like a low-budget, non-finance movie that ultimately, you know, like the financing fell apart. And she was like, well, just stay at my house in Bel Air. I said, Nora, I, 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 listen, I, I love you, I appreciate it, but I was a crackhead. I can't stay at your house. She was like, oh, Jesus Christ, get over it. Just smoke outside and call the housekeeper when you leave. Shit like that, that I was like, we were, we were tight. Entwined. Yeah, I, I, it's worth noting that you know, I also met uh, Lou Reed once towards the end of his life, thanks to Hal Wilner, who also is a major figure who's now gone. And when Lou and Nora died, you know, I cried. I mean, also when Hal died, I should say now that I've mentioned that, but it was like I'd really, I think something happened with Lou and that we had this like intense eight-hour day together where we listened to all his albums. And with Nora, I, something must have happened where I was like uh, transposing, whatever, transmutating my sorrow, grief for my parents that I couldn't figure out how to do because they both died under very insane and dark circumstances that didn't really allow for that, you know? Um, I, like, wept like a child losing, like, her mom and dad. These are the people that, if, like, if this had only been, like, my mom and dad, I would have been, like, understood or something in this life. Like, I fucking love them. Uh, yeah, so Nora and I, you know, we were kicking around, oh, okay, I guess I should do a show if you say so. It had started to be sort of kicked around, like, you know, I couldn't get jobs. It had sort of always been my fate in a way that I couldn't get jobs because I was sort of always too something. I mean, even like when I look back at Curly Sue, it's like, why couldn't I get that job? You know, like, and Nora's like, well, it's just time to do your own thing. That's why. And yeah, I've got this crazy, we met in that weird restaurant that's sort of like under Grand Central or something. And she was sitting there and 
you're pitching her what would be a Russian doll. Essentially, and and she's pitching it back. And I have this email where she's like, her name is Nadia. She lives in the East Village. She wears a black blazer. She chain smokes but shouldn't. She has a cat. She, like, it was bananas to find the email. The subject of the email was uh, things we discussed today. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty wild. No, then I guess I ran into Amy Poehler somewhere, and that led her to uh, calling me on the phone. And I remember I was like, it was just dark times. You know what I mean? Like early recovery for me was very much like just the phone was not ringing. I was watching all of NYPD Blue back to back. I was obsessed with Sipowitz. And she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, not much. Uh, yeah, great seeing you the other night. She's like, I was thinking after the other night, as long as I've known you, you've always been the oldest soul in the world. I think we should do a show about that. It's funny. It's like it's sort of like when you get these kind of calls, like whether that's Ryan or Amy or something, you're like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're like, it's not like I'm getting a ton of these guys. So, uh, like, you're a giant. The answer is yes. Uh, and yeah, it did lead to like sort of a 80 page script or something called like Tonight's the Night. That was like a lot of like Iggy Pop is playing in the beginning. And that was like little Kim songs are in there and. It was very much like the original Russian doll is much more of of a sort of like from the hospital bed looking back at a purgatory life. This, you know, what comes in between is a failed show that Amy and I make called Old Soul. Do you want to do it? I, I try to track down yeah. this show, but but it is nowhere to be found online. Well, it's uh, I'm Nadia and I'm walking around in Lou Reed t-shirts and it's an NBC sitcom that failed. So Amy and I are sitting in like my car and. She's like, what is the show that we would make if it wasn't on NBC? Could, could we, what would any of it be? And we started dancing around this sort of almost like exterminating angel idea of that Benwell film of this idea of a no exit. If you were stuck in this sort of purgatory situation and you were at this party and every night you could, in this choose-your-own-adventure way, go home with somebody else from the party, would you not find that sort of like for the first three months you were like, this was the person but at the back of that, because you hadn't done, you sort of weren't right with self, you would find every single person, including the doorman and the taxi driver and the girl and the boy and whatever, you'd be like, hey, shit, I'm sorry, buddy, it's not right. Through that seven-year process, you eventually make Russian Doll. It comes out in 2019. And there is this moment that, to me, given everything we've talked about, I just feel like we have to sit with which is you get to direct on this show. And one night, the shoot goes till about, I think maybe six in the morning. And as the set wraps, as the sun comes up, you begin to walk home. I wonder how you hold that morning now, given all the things we've talked about, all the things it took to get to that walk back home at six in the morning after shooting this show. Yeah, I mean, Russian doll is pretty heavy for me, for sure. When I think about, like, the sheer joy of the week of hosting SNL or something, and Fred and Maya are here, and I fucking love them or whatever, it's very pure. It's, like, a very clean love that I'm, like, I'm with my friends, and I fucking love them. And uh, Russian doll is more like, I'm walking home, sun's coming up, it's the same old streets of, like, the East Village that I've done decades sort of like beating and like passing out on stoops and whatever and i'm like holding like a little fucking director's binder the days are brutal you know like these are hard days of it's a night shoot i mean the entire show is basically nights and winters and you know you're not talking about game of thrones money it's just crazy i just remember walking home with a little binder by myself seeing like the same streets and the same corners and being like Holy shit. In a completely different context. Totally different. I mean, in many ways, you know, Russian All is a show about a haunting, you know, locations through time and same spaces and same people and same bodies, sort of like through time and space and this idea of like, why can I remember the past, but I can't remember the future? What's it like to hear the phone ring in the opium den and look back at a life? What would it be like to be stuck at the party but never be able to leave? So the experience of living, the working experience of making the show is the living embodiment of that Russian doll sort of like quantum experience of this same Tompkins Square Park, like the scene of the crime from Once Upon a Time is... Your own crime. Now, like my fucking set and the neighborhood's problems because we're putting up all the street signs saying you can't park here. 
we got to direct, like, I'm directing my show now. I mean, it's, it's fucking pretty bananas. All of that other stuff really, like, falls into place of its right size, which is, oh, shit, well, this is all gravy, man. And more globally, it becomes, like, this deeper understanding that the job is not to be, like, a fucking famous person or happening or in the fucking magazine or in the stupid outfit. It's, like, the job is to build a life that when you're in your all-that-jazz moment, you're thinking about Janixa and Polar and Chloe, and you're like, oh, these are the motherfuckers I was running with, and we were just kind of like making shit out there, but we really fucking knew each other. That's why I'm doing Poker Face now. Like, I fucking love Ryan Johnson. He's one of the guys that when I'm like bleary-eyed, being like out of it, I want to be like, have some sort of like spot of memory of like my time with fucking this guy. To bring it all back to Poker Face, if season one of Russian Doll was asking the question, how do I stop dying? That I think season two is asking how I start living. And I wondered if for you, you answered that question by turning to directing, to producing with this company of yours, to making new meaning out of your life through these works, through these collaborations you're talking about. I think in many ways it is the answer to what was that thing that I wanted to do when I was a kid? What was I actually like up to? It wasn't like their version of the game of showbiz or something. Directing for me is the most clear embodiment of true joy from the arts that I've found. And ultimately, I think it's because it's the most communal one I found in a way. I think I'm probably really like orphan kids searching for family. And there is a real loneliness to acting and to writing, where at a certain point you're like, you're doing a lot of very intense homework, you know, by yourself. There's something about directing that for me has a real like joyous sort of Sidney Pollock kind of quality to it of we're in this together. It's like your phone is kind of like full of information. You're showing up to all these kind of like meetings together. You're scouting stuff with your DP and, you know, you got your first AD and you guys are a bit like a gang. You're like an outfit. You're going to make this work and you're going to figure out the puzzle together. It's a very specific embodiment of like the ways in which I love in the best use of me, of the healthiest version of yes. suddenly everybody wants me to be decisive, you know, exacting and obsessive and uh, working so intimately with an editor, let's let's say like Todd Downing on Russian All. It's like there's an intimacy to that that's really like what I'm about, that collaboration of like and then you put the song on it and I'm like oh my god the white noise feeling of like by golly I think we've done it and boom there's like another fucking problem you can't get too cocky for too long because it's coming down the pike you know it kind of sounds like a clean love and it really is for me and so it, it's the cleanest thing I've found thus far like there are moments of acting that are personally like I had one it's a play we didn't talk about that I did uh, I played uh, Ethan Hawke's sister and with uh, Ann Dowd. It was called Blood from a Stone. And it was back at the new group with uh, Scott Elliott. And, you know, I remember there was this moment, like, we've been doing it for like five months. And in the middle of it, I look at Ethan and he looks at me and he's got like a big smile on his face. And we realize in that moment that we have no, we've lost the scene. We've been doing it for five months. It's our last show. We've gotten so cocky. We had been in like the lived experience of you actually can disappear for a moment and there are brief moments like that. You sort of come back from them and they're like an altered state and it's you're sort of giggly. You know what I mean? I remember like Ethan and I got almost like giggly and then all of a sudden we were just sort of back. Like we had sort of figured it out. Those moments of acting are, but they're very rare. Just a, a different kind of high. Yeah. But anyway, directing, I would say, clearly you have to be so dropped in all the time that you don't even notice where the hell the day went. It really is... I think very much like, oh, this is where I'm sort of like a maximum purpose of like the things I know and all those movies I watched and all the music and all that human condition I saw. And also in a way, all that time I spent getting healthy of like, there's a way we can do this together. And it's genuinely like makes me happy. I think what you're describing, it's like it's probably in the good timeline, which I think we're in, probably where you're always meant to be. You took some detours, some side streets, but everything you're describing would not have been possible if it weren't for those people that you mentioned that seemed to see something in you that maybe you couldn't see in yourself at a time. 
And I feel like we started this conversation talking about Nora Ephron from 1985. In the middle, we talked about her finding you again in this theater production. And I thought uh, the only natural place to end is uh, on her and some words that I love. If we can listen to it for a second. all grew up with this thing that my mother said to us over and over and over and over again, which was everything is copy. You know, you'd come home with some thing that you thought was the tragedy of your life. Someone hadn't asked you to dance or your the hem had fallen out of your dress or whatever you thought was the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being. And my mother would say everything is copy. I now believe that what my mother meant is this. When you slip on a banana peel, people laugh at you. But when you tell people you slipped on a banana peel, it's your laugh. So you become the hero rather than the victim of the joke. I think that's what she meant. On the other hand, she may merely have meant everything is copy. You're gonna make me cry, Sam. <laughs> Man, she's a fucking good writer. That's a good, good writer. I guess as we leave, then, where does that land with you at this moment in your life? I mean, I'll go <laughs> do the Camus quote. That's how it makes me feel. <laughs> um, sure. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> um, Albert Camus once wrote: "The only way to deal with an unfree world." is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. <laughs> yeah. On the good days, that's how it makes me feel. It feels a little like getting away with something. <laughs> you know, basically getting away with telling the truth is, I think, uh, that's the thing I guess I feel most grateful about, to use a banal word, but that's mostly... Uh, where it hits me or something is I can't believe that all those uh, twists and turns allowed me to have a life as one person, you know, to, like to not have to be a shapeshifter, like a life of transparency where that's the buy-in in a world that's so dark and full of it and full of like fucked up shit and lies and sadness. The idea that I'm like getting away with telling the truth the best I can sort of moment to moment and I'm just really being asked to show up at this point, you know, having done all that sort of like legwork and research is that's the thing that I'm like most moved by when I think of the countless dark nights of the soul that preceded it. Well, I thank you for telling the truth in the work, most definitely in this conversation. It has meant a whole lot to me how you have showed up. I hope you've had some fun, but if not, you know, we can always go find it later. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you in nine hours when we leave the house. I, I can't wait. Natasha Leon, a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. our show if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to give us five stars on spotify apple wherever you do your listening i want to give a special thanks this week to rebecca capillon viv Inahosa, and nora carblom at idpr i also want to thank the teams at peacock and nbc universal and of course our guest natasha leon 
If you're interested in checking out Poker Face, it is available to stream exclusively on Peacock. The season finale, directed by Janixa Bravo, airs this coming Thursday, March 9th. If you enjoy today's talk, I'd recommend others with Abby Jacobson, Pedro Pascal, Quinta Brunson, Bill Hader, Melanie Linsky, Lena Dunham, and Nick Kroll. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, the show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Jenna Jones. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliore, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Wednesday for a very special pre-Oscars talk with actor Ram Sharan. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.